What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to today's episode of the Wealth Managed podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett. I'm head of retirement research for Morningstar, an adjunct professor at the American College. So David, the 401k system was never really designed to be the primary retirement saving system for American workers. It was really designed as an executive compensation deferral type of program, but it was adopted by much of the private sector for a number of reasons. And there are some advantages of the 401k system as it currently exists today. I think you and I probably spend a lot of time defending this system, some of the advantages of the system. What are some of the advantages of the 401k system? Well, I mean, if you think about defined contribution plans, like they've really kind of taken off globally, right? The growth and utilization of the 401k is not a US phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. And I think if you know, for better or for worse, I think if I had to describe why it's so popular is that it removes the uncertainty from employers, right? It's pretty dangerous to say that, hey, I'm going to pay someone a defined benefit as long as they're alive. Defined contribution makes it a lot easier. It's a lot cleaner. You have individuals that can save for themselves and then figure out their own retirement strategies. So if you're the employer and I promise my employees a pension, of a certain amount at a certain date, what happens if they start living longer? What happens if the investment markets don't cooperate, if bond yields go down? It means that that could actually affect the profitability of my business because I got to shovel more money into a pension. So if you just hand over that burden to employees, if they have to manage their own pension essentially through a 401k, then you're transferring some of that risk from the employer to the employee. Now, there's some advantages to the employee, right? That they don't have to work for the same company for 25 years in order to get a sufficient retirement income. The benefits are more portable for sure. But I, I think to your point, right, all of the benefits an employer gets from getting rid of, of the defined benefit plan are now borne by employees in the defined contribution plan, right? So it, it is a lot more personal choice. You can choose how much you want to save. You can choose how to invest. You can make a lot more decisions. I think a, a larger question is, and I, and just to be clear, I'm a huge fan of defined contribution plans. You know, what have we done to create a hundred million-ish individuals who are saving for retirement, you know, on their own accord? Yeah, I mean, the, the big problem with 401ks right now, and and, you know, because I think it wasn't originally conceived it, it's gotten better, right? Hasn't it? So it wasn't yes. originally conceived to be the primary source of income or at least supplementary income on top of social security. You mentioned that having some discretion over how you want to invest, you can decide how much risk you want to take with your investments. You, you can decide how well you want to live in retirement. You can save a lot more if you want to live better. If you want to retire at 55, you can save a huge amount of money. You have more discretion as opposed to a pension where the employer controls everything. You are in the driver's seat. Now, being in the driver's seat works if you're Mario Andretti. It doesn't work if you're the average American. Right. I think that you know you and I have looked at this and so a lot of others. I mean, I don't know that the average American is, is well prepared to figure out how much they have to save, how do they invest and all that stuff. I think that we've done a lot of things over the last, say, decade or two to simplify things. Now there's target date funds, there's default savings rates, but even some of these aren't necessarily enough to help people retire successfully. So I, I really like the, you know, the, the idea of defined contribution plans. I just worry that there's a lot of problems with the implementation. It puts too many decisions on employees. And then what happens? 
happens. You know, let's say you've done a good job. You work for 30 or 40 years and you retire with this massive nest egg. Then what? I think that there's pretty solid evidence that people don't do a very good job of spending down what they've got. And, you know, like that's where defined benefit plans were so much simpler, right? You know, you know that you, when you retire, you get $5,000 a month, whatever else it is. Now you've got a half million dollars, figure out what to do with it. So I think we've solved one of the biggest problems with retirement savings, or at least the fact that many employees just simply never walked down to the benefits office and initiated a defined contribution plan. As of the Pension Protection Act of 2006, more employers have automatically opted employees into savings plan. Of course, they did it at probably a rate that was too low. And the SECURE Act 2 is going to make it easier for employers to opt employees in at a higher rate and then use a technique known as auto escalation to get them from, say, a 3 or 6% savings rate up to, say, a 10% savings rates by adding maybe a percent to their savings rate every year. That's a major improvement, especially in a low interest rate environment that's going to help a lot of employees get closer to being able to replace the standard of living that they had before retirement. So that's a big improvement. But what you just talked about is still a problem with defined contribution plans. I did a survey of workers not too long ago, and I found that 84% of them didn't feel comfortable spending down their savings in retirement. Now that's a problem because that's why they save the money in the first place. Like the government provides $150 billion plus of subsidies every year to workers so that they can shelter their savings from taxation. And what do they get out of it? Well, people just sit on their money in retirement. They're not actually living better. That's a problem. How can we solve this problem, David? You know, I've heard that there's these things called annuities. What, what, wait, wait, what? No, <laughs> the A word. I know. Well, let's call them personal pensions, okay? So the best personal pension in, in town, right, is delay claiming Social Security. I think that is like the only thing the vast majority of academics that have ever looked at retirement would agree upon, right? When you move beyond that, I think the next decision is to look at a private personal pension, which is also called an annuity. Now, to your point, there has been some negative stigmas with them, but that's the only way to guarantee income for life. Otherwise, you have to pull money out on your own. You have to tell someone who has no experience with investments or finance that they need to decide a safe amount of money to withdraw from their investment portfolio each year so that they don't run out of money. And I think one of the big problems with that is that faced with the potential risk of running out of money early, a lot of people are just like, eh, the market's down this year. I'm not going to go on vacation. Is that the right way to live in retirement? Probably not. So some form of at least partial annuitization is probably what we're going to see in the next generation of retirement products. And the Secure Act 2.0, which looks like it's going to get passed soon, gets us a little bit closer to that, doesn't it? And the first Secure Act did the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know everyone is different and they want to accomplish different things. But to your point, how painful is it if you're a retiree and the markets go down 30 or 40 percent and you've got 20 or 30 years or 40 years to plan for. I think that living off of income is really hard today, where given where rates are, it's also really painful. And so doing things that help participants simplify that process is valuable. And so, you know, what I'm looking forward to hopefully is more defined contribution plans, more 401k plans, introducing solutions that can help participants spin down their savings more effectively. I think one of those is guaranteed income. I think that, you know, there's other products that exist that are okay, like QLACs. I mean, QLACs 
People love him. People hate him. Michael, where do you fall on that love him, hate him spectrum when it comes to QLAC? Oh, you know, QLACs are my true love, David. You know, what is a QLAC? A qualified longevity annuity contract. It is a later life annuity. And as we know, this protects you against an idiosyncratic risk, the idiosyncratic risk that you could live a long time in retirement and then you might run out of money. So why not share that risk with other retirees? Risk pooling, economists love it. It's a fantastic idea. You never see them in retirement plans and defined contribution plans yet. But I think that longevity protection is the one thing that's missing, especially from these default types of investments. And that's something that is going to change over the next decade. It's going to be interesting to see how it changes. But the biggest problem with the defined contribution system in retirement is that it exposes all workers to the risk that they could run out of money if they live too long, which is no fault of their own, which is actually a good thing. You need to provide protection against that so that people actually feel comfortable spending the money that they've saved early in retirement knowing that if they get unlucky in the markets or if they live too long, they're not going to have to live off social security alone. I had heard the rumor you were a fan of QLX. I got to be honest about that one. Uh, this is Chris, one of the producers of the podcast. I just wanted to let the listeners know that Michael put on his QLAC hat <laughs> during the discussion. He actually has a My hat. commitment to the QLAC. At the American College of Financial Services, we're proud of the accomplishments of our expert faculty and thought leaders and the recognition they receive both inside and outside our organization. This is George Nichols, President and CEO, and I'd like to congratulate Michael Finca and David Blanchett, hosts of our Wealth Managed podcast, on being named to the 2021 Think Advisor IA25 list of professionals pushing the financial services industry forward. On behalf of all of us at the college, keep up the great work. Deliver financial planning for every person and every need through our chartered financial consultant education program. Find the tools and skills you need at theamericancollege.edu slash chfc. Let's continue where we left off. I think to me the question is, what type of product will emerge as the one that individuals use? Is it going to be a SPIA, a QLAC is a DIA, there's the GLWBs? I mean, there's a, a new Tontine-esque product that's coming out in Canada. What product will- Whoa, 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 whoa. you need to explain that to the audience. What, what is a Tontine and why, why do Tontines make even QLAC lovers salivate? I mean, why is that the ultimate structure? for a investment account in retirement for a retiree. I don't know that tontines are the ultimate product type. I think though the benefit of tontines is is that true risk pooling, right, of the pool itself. And so if you think about, you know, like a traditional annuity like a, an immediate annuity, you know, it's it's effectively between you and the insurance company, right? And a cost there is that they have to guess about how long people are going to live, they got to be overly conservative all this fun stuff. Well, in a tontine environment, it's it's the experience of the pool. So if individuals die sooner, you get more. If they die later, you get less. But a benefit of that, right, is that is that it should, in theory, result in in higher payouts and more flexibility because there's no insurance reserves. And so I think that that there can be a very powerful way to create income. There really aren't 
available now, but there's obviously a lot of fans of pontines out there from what I've heard. There are, yes. Um, so we, you and I both agree that the tontine structure where people pool their investment assets together and then they can actually pull out more money from those assets every year because some members of the pool are going to die over time, which means there's more money available for you. So you're actually creating some of that actual benefit that you get from an annuity structure. But there's annuity structures that essentially operate in a very similar manner to a tontine. So the tontine structure is not that much more efficient necessarily than an annuity structure, but it is something that we're very excited about. So I think that ultimately, one of the advantages of moving to a default that incorporates some sort of income component is that it is within plan. What are some of the advantages of having that type of an income structure within plan as opposed to having it out of plan? I'm a big fan of the DC environment because you have a you have an institutional fiduciary, right? If you're if you're part of a large plan, you have huge economies of scale. You've got professional individuals who are responsible for figuring out, you know, what should be in a plan. If you're buying in an IRA, it's kind of like the Wild West. You know, hopefully you've got a fiduciary advisor. You might not. There's just a lot more of a larger distribution of outcomes when you're looking to, to buy these products in a non-ERISA space. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line. The bottom line is that when you're within the plan, you have economies of scale, you have generally lower costs. You have the plan who is controlled by a legal fiduciary. There are some advantages of remaining, especially for average employees, of remaining within the plan. So somebody who has greater wealth, they have a more complex type of personal financial situation. They need a financial advisor. But for an average employee, it's probably better for them to remain within plan. That's where we're going to see some of the biggest benefits from the next generation of in-plan retirement solutions. Back in the 70s or late 60s, when they decided to start this program that seemed to have benefited executives at first, do you think this was all driven by the financial institutions to do more transactional business? No, I, th I think it was primarily driven by the employers because they wanted to offload some of this risk onto employees and they wanted to get it off their balance sheet. So it's very difficult to manage a business when you have this huge risk sitting out there that interest rates might be low or that longevity might go up that you have no control over. Why should you have to face that risk as an employer? So it makes sense for employers to take that risk off their balance sheet. It also has worked to the benefit of a lot of financial companies. It's been a way of managing large pots of assets that they otherwise wouldn't be managing. But I think you also have to remember that it has created incredible pressure on fees in the asset management industry. If you look at fees on your average investments within a 401k, especially in these larger plans, they're almost giving away the asset management services. So there's not huge profits being made on record keeping or even asset management within the industry in general. And I think one of the reasons is because there is this fiduciary requirement that the person who's managing these plans needs to be doing it in a manner that's in the best interest of the employees. And if they don't, they're going to get sued. Was this an early step in corporate America's kind of pushback against um unionization and, and workers' rights in terms of preserving pensions? It's a pushback against lifetime employment in the private sector, which bears its own set of inefficiencies for both workers and employers. It means that 
there's less of an incentive for me as a worker to invest in my own human capital because I'm going to be doing the same job for the same employer for the next 30 years. Now, I can be mobile in the workforce. I can invest in myself. I can get new expertise. And that can allow me to spring from one employer to the other and carry my pension around with me. In that sense, it can be better for everyone involved. You know, it can be better for the employer to lock an employee in for a long period of time. In essence, what a pension can do is take away that pressure to increase their salary because they can't leave. Because if they leave, then they lose out on tens of thousands of pension wealth. So it works on both sides of the equation. I think in general, it's just a more efficient system. I've heard a rumor that certain individuals have called the 401k a failed experiment. Would you agree or disagree? In some ways, I can see their point because for especially the first generation of 401k retirees, the system hadn't been improved enough for there to be consistently positive outcomes among workers. So there's a big chunk of workers today, especially younger baby boomers, who haven't saved enough for retirement. So who is the most vulnerable? Higher income baby boomers whose income is not going to be replaced from social security, they could see a significant drop in lifestyle. They didn't really benefit that much from the Pension Protection Act. But I think the new generation of workers, the millennials, Gen Xers like myself, have benefited much more and are probably going to be in a better position than previous generations. And I think each successive generation is going to be made better off by the 401k system. So I'll just throw my two cents. And I think it, that's a, a huge mischaracterization. I call it a failed experiment because, you know, I think I think Woo. when you do experiments, you have, you have to say versus what, right? And so it is true. It is, it is unequivocally true to your point that individuals that have been in a 401k you know, historically probably haven't saved enough and haven't done enough to to create the optimal retirement outcome. Here's the thing, though. Across the board, they are better prepared than folks that don't have access to a defined contribution plan. So they are they are not a, a perfect way to accumulate wealth, but without a doubt, individuals that, that have had access to them are doing better than those that, that don't have access to them. So that's my hot take. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm also a big fan of those state plans that are trying to bring more workers from smaller employers into a defined contribution system. And on that note, thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Wealth Managed Podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm David Blanchett. See you all later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services.